We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. My witness this week is Lisa Marciano, who is a Jungian analyst from Philadelphia and one of the hosts of this Jungian Life podcast, which actually helped inspire me to launch this podcast. So thank you for that. She's also the author of a new book called Motherhood, Facing and Finding Yourself. I have already recommended it to two of my clients. There have been a million books about becoming a mother and how to bring up children, but this is different. It's not about nappies and parent-teacher meetings, but a journey of self-discovery, a soul journey. I'm hoping she's going to provide some clues to what makes life meaningful, or at very least give us some great questions to ask ourselves. Lisa is a mother herself. She has a daughter of 18 and a son of 16. So, Lisa, welcome to The Meaningful Life. What made you decide to write this book? Well, the book dates to a particularly cold day in December when my daughter was two and my son was just a few months old. And we had just moved to a new neighborhood. I didn't know people. I felt isolated. It was a difficult time. I had really taken to motherhood uh, when my daughter was born pretty easily and I loved taking care of her. But, you know, it really is different with the second kid. I remember someone said, having one child is a hobby. (laughs) (laughs) And I really like that because, you know, when my daughter was a baby, there was nothing else I had to do but take care of her. I, I will sometimes say to, especially new moms, I'll say, listen, taking care of a baby is not hard. Taking care of a baby and doing anything else is really hard. <laughs> so, you know, when, when my son came along, it like it it really wasn't fun anymore. You know, he would be crying and that would be tremendously distressing to me. And then, you know, she would need help going to the bathroom or something. And I just it wasn't fun. It wasn't fun. And I I was struggling, I would say. You know, I sort of cried multiple times every day. And and there was this one day where they'd woken up at, you know, 4.30 in the morning. And so by 8.30, it had already been a long day. And was like, what am I going to do today? <laughs> and I just, I put them in the stroller and, and I was like, I'm just, I'm just going to take a walk just to get out of the house. But it was freezing cold and the stroller was getting stuck on the tree roots on the sidewalks and and I just I, I found myself thinking, God, everything about this is so hard. And then there was this thought that followed that, which was, and I'm learning so much about myself because of it. Mm. And I, I suddenly struck me, I mean, I was in training at that point to become a Jungian analyst. I was taking some time off because of the birth of the baby, but I was immersed in that process. And Jung had this idea that he called individuation, which he says it's the development of the individual, but it's it's also so much more than that. It's about the unfolding of our innate potential into the fullest version of ourselves, something like that. 
It's about purpose, not just living your life to the full. That's right. And it's about wholeness. It's about coming into wholeness, not perfection, but wholeness. It's sort of a lifelong task. So what I found myself thinking is motherhood is really an individuation opportunity. So it's about a chance to learn about yourself. Yes. And that sort of almost puts motherhood the opposite way around the way most people think about it. They think about it as something for other people. But what you're saying is it's actually something for yourself and your personal journey too. Yes. I mean, perhaps it's both because, you know, it obviously does require us to be generative and concern ourselves with our children and by extension, the next generation. And it does expand our sense of where we are in the world and what we owe to the world, I think, to become a parent. But yes, it is also about our self-development, or it can be. And you're talking about the generations going forward. One of the things I see in my practice is that becoming a mother makes people think of the generations going backwards as well, and in particular about your own childhood. Mm -hmm. Did you find that becoming a mother made you think about your childhood in an entirely new way? Of course, I think motherhood does do that. There's a way that becoming a mother connects us back in time to all of the preceding generations. It often changes our relationship, our kind of internal relationship with our own mother. It can be, I think, ultimately healing of that relationship if it were difficult, or, or at least helps elucidate kind of where she ends and we begin, and it connects us forward. So, yeah, I think it does both. It really expands. It places us in the cosmos. Explain this idea of where our mothers end and we begin, because I think that's an incredibly important concept. So, I think a lot of times when we become mothers, if we had a difficult relationship with our mother we may still find ourselves caught in her orbit psychologically. Even if we've separated from her, maybe we don't even talk to her anymore or have little contact with her, but internally she's still a force. And I think that as we mother our own children, we begin to have a clearer sense of what she might have been going through. So sometimes we can find more compassion for her. Or we realize maybe even more deeply how we were betrayed or let down by her because we can see that we're not going to do that to our children. So it helps us differentiate psychologically, I think, from our mothers. And, and at the same time, it can draw us closer too. I mean, if you had a, a good enough relationship with your mother, it, it can really deepen that relationship, both, you know, with your actual mother, but also kind of intrapsychically. So tell me how it changed your relationship with your mother and with your internal mother. Mm. Well, I had a very good relationship with my mother. Excellent. <laughs> I may be one of the few Jungian analysts that has a positive mother complex. <laughs> I, I remember I was graduating from Jungian training, which is really long and difficult. It takes like, you know, eight, 10 years. And I, it was like, I think going to be the day of my graduation. And some of my trainees looked at me and said, Lisa, you got through fairly easily. Like you didn't have a lot of bruising experiences. How did you do that? And I said, oh, well, I have a positive mother complex. And everyone at the table, their jaw dropped and someone said, wow, what's that like? <laughs> because the old story is that people become therapists to make sense of their own complex childhood. Sure, sure. So wh why did you become a therapist then? 
Well, I I had my own wounds. They weren't particularly in the mother realm, but I had my demons that I struggled with as well. You know, and also, (laughs) my mother loved Jung. Oh, And she would tell me some of the things that she read in Jung that were sort of appealing or appropriate for a young child. But I remember her telling me certain stories from Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, for example, that I found absolutely fascinating and captivating. So give me an example of a story your mother told you from Jung. (laughs) (laughs) Well, right around the time of Jung's confrontation with the unconscious after his break with Freud, he wrote this piece called Seven Sermons for the Dead. And that piece kind of erupted out of him after this tremendous period of psychic tension that seemed to kind of infect the whole house. And one day the family was home, the staff was there, whatever, and the front doorbell started ringing wildly. And people could see the bell. People could see the door where the bell rope was. There was no one there. So it was this sort of paranormal occurrence. And I think it was right after that, that, you know, this writing this, this piece was almost kind of mediumistic. I mean, it just it was like Jung took on this voice of the ancient Gnostics and, and wrote this incredibly, it, it's kind of an odd piece, but it really has to do with coming to terms with the ancestors. So she told me the story about the bell ringing. And, you know, of course, I'm, I'm like eight or nine years old. And I'm like, wow, you know, that's, that's really cool. And interestingly, in 2019, I went to Jung's house in Kuznacht and saw that bell. And it's, you know, it's a big bell. It would be, it would be hard to misinterpret what was going on. So it was really cool. So, yeah, so my mother bequeathed this to me as well. Wow. Is she still alive? No, she passed away in 2019, actually. So, there's a part of her in this book too, is there? There absolutely is. So, one of the things on this Jungian life that you always do that I enjoy is you always bring a fairy tale that Mm. elucidates, and fairy tales are just full of stories of mothers. So, what I would like is a fairy tale which shows the complexity, because normally our culture shows mothers as baking apple pies and telling stories about kittens and rainbows, and motherhood is more complex than that. So let's try and sort of see the range of it through looking at a fairy tale. Well, there are so many, and I just find that I kind of think in fairy tales at this point. So the book is filled with fairy tales. There's at least one fairy tale per chapter, and it does exactly what you're talking about. It kind of shows all aspects of it. So my problem right now is to pick one for our discussion here. So let me just think. Maybe I will bring up Changeling Fairy Tales, because I don't think I actually discuss one in the book. Changeling fairy tales are really common in England and Scotland and Ireland. There's a lot of changeling fairy tales. And and it goes something like this. A mother and a father have a beautiful, healthy baby. And one day the mother leaves the baby for a moment to go get water or something and comes back. And suddenly the baby is sickly and ill-tempered and can't be soothed and ugly. And, you know, ailing and the family doesn't understand what's happened. And eventually they consult with, you know, a wise person in the village who explains that the fairies have come and taken the real baby away 
and replaced it with a changeling, kind of a fairy baby. So there's some remedy for tricking the fairies to give the original baby back. And it's always, they're almost always a little funny. So you you have to sometimes do something really crazy to make the changeling reveal himself. So the changeling will say, I've never seen anyone do that before. And suddenly it's like, okay, now it's been revealed, you're a changeling. But I think this is interesting because first of all, you know, we can imagine that this might be alluding to a phenomenon, you know, in the pre-modern era of having a baby who suddenly gets ill or, you know, failure to thrive or something like that. And you, you had a healthy baby, but then he becomes ill, let's say, and there's no explanation for it. This would perhaps be kind of a fanciful image of that. But I'm also interested in it as a psychological symbol for what happens on an almost daily basis when you're mothering young children, which is, you know, I I have this memory of my, my son who I have to tell you was like exceptionally cute. I mean, really, really cute. And I have this belief that toddlers are cute in inverse proportion to how much trouble they are. And it's like an evolutionary thing. It's like you won't kill them if they're really cute. So he was really, really like squirrely and difficult and really, really adorable. Okay. So he comes downstairs one morning. He's like, mommy, would you make me pancakes? I want blueberry pancakes. So he's just so darling. It's like, oh, of course I'll make you blueberry pancakes, sweetie. So I go about making the blueberry pancakes and I serve them and they're hot and I put butter on them and I put maple syrup on them. And he's like, you know, in the other room now and he's playing and he's busy. And I'm like, you know, come have your pancakes. You know, he doesn't want to come because he's gotten busy playing. So finally he comes and he sees them. He says, you didn't put enough syrup on. And of course, it's just that the syrup is like soaked into the pancake at this point. So I'm trying to explain that to him. Like, what was I thinking? But he, you know, throws himself very dramatically on the chair and he's like screaming and howling that there's not enough syrup on. So when he came downstairs and asked me for the pancakes, like my heart is just filled with love. Like this adorable, darling little thing is asking me for blueberry pancakes. And I, I'm just reveling in his deliciousness. And when he's, you know, thrown himself on the chair and is howling, and I now I've got a mess in the kitchen and we have to go somewhere in 20 minutes, and he's not eating his pancakes because he's saying there's not enough syrup on it, I want to kill him. I want to bury him in the backyard, you know? And it is this kind of like changeling experience. It's like, I'm not in that warm, ooey-gooey love place right then. It's like the elves have come and switched him out, and now he's horrid, <laughs> And so what I kind of love about the changeling tales is that they are always lighthearted and there is this kind of fluidity that goes on. They're they're rarely tragic stories. And I, I think especially with younger children, we are moving back and forth between these states of just feeling like waves of love and adoration and then just being, you know, I mean, young children are infuriating. <laughs> And what you seem to be saying is the way to transfer from one of those worlds into the other one is through humor. Yes. Yes. I think that that's exactly right. Through some kind of ability to hold it lightly. And if you can get this overview of a fairy tale, you don't feel quite so alone with this. And that is much easier to hold it lightly rather than thinking, oh my God, I'm a terrible mother. Exactly. That's a very good way of putting it. As fairy tales let us know what story we're in and where we might be going. Well, let's look at another one, much more from the mother point of view, because there are in fairy tales, there tend to be quite a lot of wicked stepmothers and mm-hmm. witches. So how do they fit 
into motherhood. Yeah, there's plenty of kind of murderous mothers. And there's some that I'm thinking of that have to do with sort of depression. But we could talk about Snow White for a minute, which is a fabulously interesting fairy tale Mm. from the standpoint of motherhood. Even the Disney film, as a child, I mean, I was terrified by the woods and the witch. And I mean, it really is. It's a story that touches you very deeply. And in the original Grimm's version, it wasn't her stepmother. It was her mother. Ooh. And one of the things that I think that fairy tale captures that is really true is it is not an uncommon experience to feel envious of your children. Yeah. That is a real thing. And how many people can actually admit to that? Exactly. It is so taboo. And yet it's so kind of common. And human. Mm -hmm. Very much. And it's something I think fathers and sons have an even stronger and are even less able to look at. Oh, that's really interesting, of course. And that's in the mythology too, because we have the Titan Cronus, who doesn't want to be uh, superseded by his children, and he learns that one of his sons will overthrow him, and so he swallows them all. Yep, it's one of those phrases that mothers sometimes say, I love you so much I could eat you all up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but actually... Becoming a mother can actually swallow people up themselves. It can actually swallow up the mother. Mm -hmm. Because I often find myself working with women in their sort of 50s or late 40s, and their children are beginning to get to the point where they're, you know, about to wave goodbye to the last one going off to university. Mm -hmm. And there is a huge emptiness because being a mother does provide a huge amount of meaning for your life. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly, they walk out the door. Yeah. Why is motherhood so powerful that it actually devours you if you're not careful? Well, you know, it's it's interesting because, you know, we think of ourselves most of the time from our ego perspective, where we get up in the morning and we have the things that we want to do and we maybe have goals for ourselves and that kind of thing. But there's another way, if we almost look at ourselves as sort of, I don't know, children of the gods or something, if we move out into a mythological perspective, we can see that nature's just having her way with us. You know, our biological destiny is to procreate. Mm-hmm. And there's a way that nature doesn't really care what happens to you, more or less. Not, every, I mean, for humans, it's very important that mom sticks around until the kids are, are older, right? Because babies wouldn't survive without families. We're not octopuses. But basically, from nature's perspective, she doesn't really care what happens to you after you've gotten your kids to a certain age. And I think we kind of know that in a deep, kind of innate way. I remember my own my own relationship to my my own death and I think I'm not alone in this at all. It totally changes when you have a kid, you know. Like you don't want to die before you have kids, but once when you have little kids you're like I, I get in the car and I think I cannot die. I can I I almost became phobic of driving because I was so worried I'd have a car accident and die and leave my children with no mother. Now I don't have that as much. And it, I I think it's almost biological. It's like, well, they're they're launched like, you know, I don't want to die now either, but <laughs> but if it doesn't feel like I would be stranding my kids if I did in quite the same way. So I think that there's a way that very deeply, and Jung talked a lot about how we get disconnected from the instincts as moderns and how that is a source of pathology and and symptoms and neurosis. So I think that there is a part of us that feels very deeply instinctually that it is our biological destiny to have children. So there is a way where we get spent, you know, we're all going to get spent on something 
and you can spend yourself on your children. And is that a good or a bad thing? Well, that is a hard question because in some sense, I think we're meant to spend ourselves on our children. And at the same time, we're not just instinctual beings. And we do have our own journey, our own personhood. You know, going back to this idea of individuation, there's all this unfolding that we need to do. It might be that being a parent is part of that unfolding, but it's very likely not the only thing. Like, we don't stop kind of being full humans just because our children move home. I'm just suddenly thinking something. You're saying that actually children arriving in the world is the beginning of this journey of self-discovery. And there's probably a huge number of lessons for them walking out the door in the self-discovery mm-hmm. department mm-hmm. too. Yes. Help me think about this idea. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, for one thing, it it is a confrontation with loss with limitation, and with our own mortality. Loss, limitation, and our own mortality. Mm -hmm. Expand that for me. Well, obviously, aging brings up all of these things. But I think that the moment that our kids leave, it's very stark that that's where we are. It's a pretty abrupt moment. And I did this this past fall. I, I took my eldest off to college and, you know, watched her recede in the rearview mirror as I drove away. So it's a real moment that it's hard to go unnoticed. You know, one day they're there and the house is a flurry because you're trying to get them all packed. And then you drive them up and then you come home and there's an emptiness. It's, It's a passage. So as we age, we're of course confronting limitation, loss, and mortality. But few moments elucidate that as clearly as the departure of a child. And by loss, I mean, obviously, you're you're losing lots of things. You're losing that kind of daily mothering role. You're also losing maybe the presence of that person in your life. You're losing a sense of purpose, perhaps, kind of a structuring element to your day. You're also recognizing that there are whole vistas that lie behind you now that are perhaps greater than those that lie in front. You know, when we're just starting our parenting journey, we have this whole incredible adventure ahead of us. You know, we don't know where it's going to lead, but it's it's all ahead of us. But when they leave for college, it's not like we stop being parents and Lord knows kids still need us. And we, most of us, thank goodness, have active relationships with our parent with our children. And they keep on coming back home again as well. Yes, yes. It is a stark moment, but it's not that stark because then they come back for <laughs> all kinds of things. But I'm thinking at this moment as a gift. It's a gift to them because actually if they stayed living on your sofa, that would be a pretty tragic end. So seeing them go is a gift to them. And I'm fairly clear on that part. But I also want to think actually letting them go is a gift to ourselves too. And it's a gift to mothers. What could the gift to mothers be of letting your children go? First of all, you know, there is the chance to reinvest in yourself, to come back to yourself with this increased knowledge that you have as a result of having spent this time mothering and plunge into your own interests. You know, your values have likely been realigned by this experience of being a mother. And now you can return to your own life and explore what's meaningful to you. 
and hopefully engage in it. I mean, some women find that their careers become more active after the kids leave home and they may have an incredible energy for creative or professional work, or they may return to the work world for the first time, or they may discover new unopened rooms in their psychic house. Uh, maybe they have always wanted to paint and they start painting. Or maybe they have a book they've been planning since their children were two and a few months old. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I feel extraordinarily lucky because, you know, when my kids were little, I was able to devote almost all of my time to that. And now that they're getting ready to launch, I have obviously a lot of really fun things in my professional life that give me a lot of energy. So I've been extraordinarily lucky and sort of hit the sweet spot. Now, you say in your book that it's okay to have conflict with your children. Why is it important to be in conflict with your children? Oh, well, well what, <laughs> there's so many reasons. I mean, first of all, just in a kind of bread and butter way, it is part of our job to set limits. And that's a very, very important thing it's an important thing if we want to think about it in psychological terms. You know, Winnicott talked about the good enough mother. And part of being a good enough mother is sometimes failing your children in small ways. This comes out of kind of object relations theory that it's in those bite sized moments of frustration that infants and young children learn that they're separate from us and that they can kind of begin to develop a sense of self a sense of being dependent. And an idea that the world is not always going to provide enough syrup on your pancakes. That's right. And to be able to tolerate that. So if we're kind of endlessly soothing, then there's no challenge. And of course, the sense of you know providing limitations and then helping kids deal with the frustration around that by being able to tolerate their frustration around that is really important in terms of teaching them to self-regulate in all kinds of ways. I also think that we as a parenting culture right now have a very difficult time tolerating the idea that our children will be unhappy or frustrated or hurt. And it is so difficult to watch a kid suffer. I mean, I have some great personal stories about that as well that I'm happy to share. <laughs> I'd like to share it actually because they're kind of funny. But, you know, we must, we must struggle to become real people, real whole people who can survive sturdily out in the world. There's this little vignette I read recently that these scientists created this biodome, which was this completely self-contained environment. And there was you know, sunlight and there was water, but it was enclosed. So they planted trees, the trees sprouted, grew up. And as soon as they got to full height, they just fell over and they couldn't figure it out. And then they realized it was because there was no wind. Oh. So it's the tree having to stand in the wind that gives it its strength. What a beautiful image. Mm -hmm. The thing I see in my room on quite a regular basis, which is in the dark side of motherhood that we're not allowed to talk about, right. and that is rage. Yeah. Now, where I see the rage going is often to their partner, because you're not allowed to be angry with the children. You're not allowed to be angry. Well, you are allowed to be angry with yourself, but and possibly there's an awful lot of anger there as well, mm -hmm. but it's perfectly acceptable to be angry with your partner. So 
where is all this rage coming from and how do we deal with it? God, yeah. I have a whole chapter in the book on rage. I think you need one, maybe two chapters. Well, there's three chapters about sort of the shadow and one of those is about rage in particular. My favorite quote on motherhood is the novelist Faye Weldon said, the nicest thing, this may be a paraphrase, the best thing about not having children is that you can go on thinking that you're a good person. <laughs> uh, Faye Weldon has had children, so she knows that's not the case. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, th- <laughs> the thing about kids is, as someone once put it, it's the alwaysness of it. I mean, mm. you you have a cat maybe and you, you know, or a puppy, but you know, you can put the puppy in his crate. You should put the puppy in its crate. It needs a rest. Yeah. Or you can, you know, drop the puppy off with a, you know, puppy caregiver over the weekend. I mean, you just can't, unless you've done it, it's hard to fathom just the physical demands of having a child that, you know, they can wake up at any time of the night and you've got to go deal with it. No matter, it doesn't matter how tired you are, how sick you are. I remember my daughter when she was, I don't know, a year and a half or something, she got rotavirus. And, you know, when your kid gets rotavirus, guess what? You get rotavirus. We renamed it the death come take me now virus in my household because you just want to die. It's horrible. And it didn't matter that I couldn't stand up without vomiting. I still had to take care of her. You know, it was just, Asking where the rage comes from, I think partly it's just that we're actually just pushed to our limit Right. a lot of the time. We're exhausted. There's sort of no time. Once they talk, you can't even have your own thought because they're always talking. So you can't even just be in your own head, you know, and it's the intensity of it, I think. If there's any capacity for rage, and there's capacity for rage in all of us, you're going to experience that. And this is partly why it's a real opportunity for psychological growth. Because you may have thought, oh, I, you know, I'm not capable of rage. I'm not capable of sadism. I would never be rough with a child. Well, guess what? <laughs> I think most mothers, if they're being honest, are going to admit that they had moments of just cross-eyed rage probably every day so what do you do with this rage we first of all we've accepted that it's perfectly normal it's natural it's human and fairy tales are full of murderous witches that are going to eat hansel and gretel and everybody else so it's perfectly normal it's okay what's the next thing we do with it there's a great fairy tale that i use in the book to talk about rage and it's called the horned women It's an Irish fairy tale. And it's about this woman who's up late at night working and there's a knock at the door. And one by one, these witches come in. They have the first witch has one horn, the second witch has two horns and on like that. And there's 12 of them. Ooh! She can't cry out. She has to do their bidding. And they make her drain the children's blood and make a cake. (laughs) Yeah, it's really... Really dark. Can't see the Disney version of this any day soon. No, I don't think that's on their list. But she gets help from the spirit of the well. They tell her to go get water. And so she's down at the well and the well helps her. And wells in Ireland are sacred places. They're portals to the realm of the sacred feminine. And so there's a lot of kind of numinosity and wisdom there. And with the advice from the well, she's able to banish the witches. And it involves several things. It involves actually feeding some of that cake to her children, which I think says something about sort of metabolizing our rage and then being able to basically apologize. And, you know, people who research infant 
attachment, talk about the importance of repair. It's not really so much about never getting angry at your kids as it is about being able to effect a good repair. So if you get angry and you really lose it, the important thing is when you've calmed down a little bit to go back and really make a good repair that probably is an apology and maybe an explanation about, you know, here's what was happening for me. Not you made me get so angry, but, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry that I yelled at you. I shouldn't have done that. I've been feeling really tired and, you know, I'll, I'll try to do better. Knowing that you'll probably screw up again, but you're, you're thinking about it. And I'm interested in the well because uh, the well is very deep, isn't it? And mm-hmm. the answers are coming from actually quite deep inside us. Yes. And so there does seem to need to be some sort of contemplation, possibly about your history when it comes to rage. You know, what mm-hmm. was your mother's relationship to rage and your grandmother's relationship to rage? I think that would be quite interesting to explore. I, I really, really like that. I think that that's a perfect kind of extension of the amplification. And Jung actually had sort of a, a thought about apologies, which is what really matters is that you do exactly what you're talking about. When you've made a mistake, that you take it in and you think really hard about what was going on for me? Why did this happen? Why did I get so provoked by him having a meltdown about there not being enough syrup on the pancake? Because it's probably about something extra, because mm-hmm. this has got a, an extra force to it. Yes. It's, you know, there's something about, I don't know, not providing or not being perfect or something that mm-hmm. is hooking you in on. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think that's really good. So, yeah, so there's contemplation, there's listening to our own deep wisdom, there's being able to, in effect, or repair. But the, the spirit of the well also tells her you have to bar the door. Right. There are these sort of intrapsychic things that we have to do, but then there may be some practices that we need to try to incorporate to just build up a strong enough ego so that we don't, we're not constantly lashing out on our kids. That we're, we're not letting all these random thoughts come in because, you know, the internet is like a door that is, you know, we're forever opening and letting all these witches in, aren't we? Yes. Yeah, that's, that's a great image. Yeah, that's the internet. <laughs> so, if we're talking about mistakes, I've got a great question that I was asked the other day that I would like to ask you. What mistake would you like your mother to admit to? So we've been talking about you as a mother. Let's look at it the other way around. Unfortunately, my mother is also dead. She died basically around the same time as your mother. And my mother was a wonderful woman, but she never apologized to me about anything in, let's say, 55, 56 years. And I think you're right. An apology is a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. So what mistake would you like your mother to admit to? What an interesting question. Well, two things come to mind, actually. But I think the one that has the most emotional weight for me is I wish that she had been able to admit to me and to herself that she avoided certain things out of fear. Right. So my mother actually had a hard life. She had trauma in childhood. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just really intelligent woman, so capable in so many areas. And in some sense, she sort of chose to keep her life small, I think, out of fear. And I think that that affected her, but it also affected me in a way as well, kind of secondarily. And I've always had a sort of lingering sadness about it. I don't think she you know, wound up being unhappy or not feeling actualized. But I do think there were things that she could have 
done or would have liked to have done that she never really allowed herself to do because she was afraid. And actually, a woman of that generation that was reading Jung, it's just to me somebody who wanted to have quite a big life, you know, because we're talking about big topics as we've discovered today. Yes. So, you know, Jung said that the biggest impact on a child's life is the unlived life of the parent. Do you know that what I was going to actually say next speaks exactly to that? Because one of the people we I talk about a lot on this podcast is James Hollis, and I believe he was one of your teachers. Mm-hmm. Yes, he is. And in his Living the Examined Life, which we often talk about on this podcast, He says, the greatest gift you can give your child is to follow your path. Yeah. And, you know, I may be an example of that because there was my mother alone in her study when my sister and I were in school reading Jung and making copious notes in the margins. I mean, these are my copies of the collected works now. I have her notes in the margins. Mm. You know, she never went into analysis. And she never really took that interest further. And here I am, you know. You're living her unlived life. Perhaps I am. And it ain't so bad, I got to say. But yes. So I now have got to pass it down the generations. What do you think you should, uh, the mistake you should admit to, to your daughter? Oh, God. <laughs> this is, you said this interview was going to be fun. Forget that. <laughs> okay. Let's see. Where do I start? But- Only one thing. Okay, only one one thing. thing. I feel like I allowed myself to be too driven by anxiety. Yeah, for sure. That's my number one. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So if you are a supporter of The Meaningful Life, you get a chance to write a letter for me to discuss with my guest. And Lisa, I have got a perfect letter for you today. I've just found out that I'm pregnant, but beyond telling my mother and my best friend, I have told nobody. I'm dreading this weekend when my partner and I tell his father and his stepmother. Everybody will say, you must be so happy, and I will pretend everything is wonderful. I feel horrible inside and guilty because I am lying. I want this child and have a family more than anything, but I'm also scared. I don't want my child to look back and think his or her mum is a loser. I don't feel strong and inspiring like I used to feel at my work. Nobody can see how I feel. Most of the time, I have no energy and stare at the ceiling, and people keep offering me wonderful new jobs. I was made redundant recently, but I've turned them all down. I have new job interviews, and I don't want to go to them. What will I say if my children ask how I felt when I got pregnant? Does everyone feel amazing when they discover they're having a baby? So what do you think, Lisa? Well, there's a lot here. And I first want to acknowledge two components. So one is how she feels discovering that she's pregnant. And the other is having no energy and staring at the ceiling and not wanting to go on new job interviews and something about how she used to feel at work. And somehow, in a way I don't quite understand from this letter, these two issues are intertwined. Yes. That she's demoralized somehow professionally, and that seems to be impinging on how she imagines she might be as a mother. So I'm holding that. 
I wonder a little bit about depression, mm-hmm. kind of having no energy and staring at the ceiling and, and not wanting to do anything. So I'm I'm sort of tracking that. And I'd be curious if this were my client, I would want to know, did the feelings of depression start before you found out you were pregnant? Or could they possibly have been triggered by learning that you're pregnant? So I think I'm going to address the part about how people feel when they discover they're having a baby. I don't want to, I don't, I didn't want to just gloss over this potential depression and how this might be showing up in other parts of her life. So, what I will say is no, (laughs) not everyone feels amazing when they discover they're having a baby. So, what do your clients tell you? Because you have had lots of women talking to you honestly. So, give us the skinny. Okay. So, the first word that comes to mind is ambivalence. Oh, that's a good word. It's a great word. I think that we're all ambivalent about most things most of the time. And we're especially ambivalent about big things. And having a baby is a big, big thing. And the the thing is, when you become pregnant, it's like you are no longer in control. Your ego, for sure, is not in control. You are being dragged along on an ancient journey. Your body has been co-opted by nature and by this baby, this being in you. I mean, it's kind of a parasitic relationship. And this thing is happening to you that you don't get to control. And it's, you know, it can, it can be cool, you know, to be pregnant. But it can also be really, really deeply unsettling because you do experience this kind of weird loss of autonomy about what's happening to your body. Something's grabbing hold of you and just, here you go, here you go. You know, it's like, whether you like it or not, it's happening. And I think also, I mean, this this person mentions being so scared, right? That's what she says. She feels scared. Did I make yes, that up? Yes, she does feel scared. Yeah. And I think that that is so normal. And I don't know what she feels scared of, but I could have all kinds of imaginations. And I wonder how much the scaredness is about the things that everybody's going to be thinking about, which is, you know, the fact that the world is dangerous, the whole experience is painful. But I wonder if there is old scaredness that has been reawakened by this. And I'm Mm -hmm. thinking particularly about scaredness from when you're a child. I mean, listen, I think it's normal to feel scared, anxious, ambivalent when you learn that you're going to have a baby. I think that anyone would feel that. I certainly you know, had my own version of this. I Both pregnancies, I just ruminated. (laughs) I'm like, I'm supposed to be enjoying this, but I just ruminated about how this was going to go. But I think particularly if we had a kind of a, a, a childhood wound, say, you know, I think that learning that you're pregnant can bring up these unresolved attachment issues. So explain to me what an attachment issue is. So, gosh, how to explain attachment theory. We know, hey, look, we're mammals, okay? And mammals need to attach to their offspring. Otherwise, those offspring don't survive. And so, when we're a child, hopefully we have a good, healthy attachment with our primary caregiver. Which is called a secure attachment. Mm -hmm. A secure attachment. But if something goes wrong, then we may have a disorganized attachment or an avoidant attachment. And these patterns get set early and they can carry on throughout the rest of our lives. Now, it's not set in stone. You can change it, but it's there. And I think that when we have a secure attachment, we are primed to attach securely with our own child. When we don't have a secure attachment, we may have a little more trouble And quite a bit of anxiety. And I think there's anxiety around in this letter, isn't there? 
Yes. I wonder if she wonders whether she'll kind of attach securely to her baby. Well, what will my baby think? Yeah. You know, I'm not excited. And and where I hear that, Andrew, is in the sense of like, I'll be a loser. I'll be a loser. I think ideally the mother-child dyad kind of gets its fuel from a feeling of competence on the part of the mother. So right. it goes like this. The baby cries Mom goes, picks him up, comforts him. He stops crying. He nurses. He smiles. He sleeps. There is this tremendous sense of like competence and efficacy that you get that is rewarding. So there's a reward loop there that gets going. Makes you want to be with your child more because it feels good to be with your child. Now, what happens is if something goes wrong in that process, you feel incompetent, as I think I hear that this person is feeling, then your baby can't be comforted or whatever. You feel badly about yourself. Being around your kid makes you feel badly about yourself. So you want to distance yourself. And then when you distance yourself, you get less attached. So it's even harder to get that feeling of competence and efficacy. And it can sort of be a negative cycle. So there's something so important about us feeling competent. And I don't think that this letter writer is sort of doomed to suffer from postpartum depression and struggle with feelings of inefficacy throughout because, I mean, this is very early days, but she might. This might be something that comes up for her. And what I would say to her is, it's normal to sometimes feel like you're messing up. And if that's the constant feeling that you're having, it may get in the way of enjoying your child. And I think that it would be very helpful for you to read Lisa's book, to be perfectly honest, because we're going to get the full range of all these feelings about children, which in our modern culture, in what we consume on a daily basis, we don't get. And I think what you need is the ancient wisdom that says, <laughs> first and foremost, these things have all happened before. They can be sorted out. There are answers even if they're a little bit weird, like, you know, barring the door and going to the well to ask for advice, there is advice out there. And in a sense, you've started to look for advice and are beginning to admit to all of this stuff. So you are about 300 miles ahead of a lot of people. Absolutely. And, and what I would say is, and I do talk about this kind of thing in the book. So yes, read the book and be gentle with yourself. It's okay that you're not over the moon about having yeah. a kid. It is a big, big deal. And of course, you're going to have some mixed feelings about it. And you've got months and months to get used to the idea and then years and years to get the parenting right. So don't be too hard on yourself. And you can apologize. And I am, as you can tell, I'm somebody who asks a lot of questions. And I have asked my mother a million questions, but I never, ever thought of asking her the question, how did you feel when you became pregnant? That's right. I've never, my kids have never asked me that. And you've got plenty of time to prepare if they do ever ask you that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'll say, I think my mother was actually very ambivalent about becoming a mother, and yet she was a, a wonderful and very loving mother. So. so, what you can tell them is you start and be off on this wonderful journey of self-discovery. <laughs> <laughs> that is not all sunshine and roses. So, don't let the cultural narrative around it make you think that it's happy every moment, because it is most certainly not. So, I've invited you on The Meaningful Life to be a witness to what makes life meaningful. So, what makes life meaningful for you, Lisa? Such a great question. You know, J Jim Hollis has this wonderful question that he asks, which is, what wants to come into the world through you? 
Mm, I love that question as well. I've I've thought of that question long and deep too. And and I think that question implies a sense of destiny, that there is something that each of us comes into the world with, needing to fulfill, which is an ancient belief, by the way. I mean, this is talked about in Plato's Republic and the myth of Ur, that each individual has a destiny and our daimon remembers that destiny for us. We forget it as when we get born, but our daimon remembers. So, as far as I can tell, I think that that's probably true, that we do all come into the world with some sense of something that we need to do or be. It's related to this idea of individuation that we've been talking about, that there's some kind of blueprint that we're meant to follow, which is one of one of the very important ideas in Jung is this idea of telos, that there there's an endpoint, there's a direction, there's a meaning, there's a purpose. So I think, to get back directly to your question, that when we're somehow in alignment, when we are allowing that thing that wants to come into the world through us to come through, then life has meaning. We are living out our purpose. And I'm looking forward to being able to actually read your book when it comes out in May. This foretaste of it has been absolutely incredible. So thank you very much for sharing that with us. Now, if you are a member of our supporters circle, this is not the point the interview finishes. We're going to find out what three things Lisa knows to be true. But in the meantime, Lisa, thank you very much. Thanks. It was really wonderful. I so appreciate you having me on. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you. Thank you.